Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. For the past several months, we've been looking at uh, the Bible, and we really a survey of the entire Bible. And uh, what are some of the themes? We've been talking about God's grace the story of redemption as the primary themes of the Bible. And very early on, we looked at the book of Exodus. God gathered his people at Mount Sinai where he gave them the law. Before you had the law, now you have grace. What does Jesus say? And here it is. Jesus Christ in the New Testament, again he gathers the people just the way that God gathered his people by mountainside, before it was Sinai, now here he gathers his people by mountainside. And what does he say here in Matthew chapter 5 uh, to 7? Forget about the law? You don't need the law anymore? No. He affirms the law. He says, you have heard it said. He affirms the law. And then he says, but I tell you this. And he goes deeper. He affirms the law. And he doesn't say you don't need it anymore. He says, now we're going to go deeper. Why? What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, laws define a people. Laws define a nation. Before, God's people, they were just a people. The gospel is about the kingdom. In fact, Jesus never says, take me in as your Lord and Savior. Receive me as your Lord and Savior. He always says, repent. Enter the kingdom. He compares being born again with seeing the kingdom, entering into the kingdom of God. When a new administration comes into power, we've just recently experienced something like this, a new administration coming into power, uh, uh, that kingdom, that, that administration is expressed through new priorities, new strategies, new values, new policies, and Jesus Christ is saying this, I'm not just offering you salvation. I'm not just offering you rescue. I am your king. I am your king. And so my, the effects of my values and my policies are far greater, are far deeper, far more comprehensive, far more holistic. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us just how radical change in the gospel actually is. The Beatitudes, they're the most famous teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. But they're easily misunderstood because when you look at it at a glance, it seems like uh, Jesus Christ is calling out eight different types of classes of people. People who are poor in spirit, people who are mourning, people who are meek, people who are hungry. But verse 3 says this. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And then verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see these two bookends. And we've, we've learned about bookends before in Scripture. Whenever you see these types of verses acting as bookends, what do we say about that? They demonstrate here the, quality, the qualities of a people to whom the kingdom belongs. It's characterizing one type of person, one group of people. Jesus is saying only a certain kind of person will enter the kingdom, and they are marked. They are characterized by a certain quality, a certain type, a certain character. The first four Beatitudes shows us how to get into the kingdom. You got to be poor. You got to be mourning. You got to be meek. You got to be hungry. You got to thirst for righteousness. The second uh, half, the, the other four Beatitudes, shows us how that transformed life shapes your relationships, shapes your purity, shapes your integrity, shapes your sense of mission, shapes your suffering in the kingdom. And today we're going to focus on the first four verses, or the first four of these qualities. And so we're going to have five very quick points. One, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Two, what does it mean to mourn? Three, what does it mean to be meek? Four, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And lastly, how do you get all these things? How do you become blessed? First, we're going to look at what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It abandons this concept of self-help. It abandons this do-it-yourself culture. What is that? Self-help, do-it-yourself culture says this, believe in yourself. You can do it. Don't be negative. Just try. Don't doubt yourself. Don't listen to those negative voices in your life. But Jesus says, do you want to enter the kingdom? Do you want to enter into the kingdom? You have to listen to your self-doubt. You don't have what it takes. Don't believe in yourself. Why? Because your problems are so far beyond you that there is nothing inside of you. There are no resources. There is no wisdom, no courage, no endurance, no provision that you have that will help you to get through any of these great problems in your life that are so beyond you. In other words, you are poor. You are bankrupt. That's what he's saying. When you're poor in spirit, a person entering into the kingdom realizes this, that my brokenness is so widespread in my life that it's more than something that's sociological or educational or psychological or sexual or physical or environmental. It's so far deeper and greater and more comprehensive than that. It's spiritual. And that means it goes beyond anything that a therapist can say or do. It goes beyond anything that a philosopher can say or do. And what that means is that there's nothing in me, nothing anywhere else in the world that I can rely on to give me help. It's a cosmic problem. And that's very important. Why? Many of us, we approach Christianity as a supplement in our lives, something that we come to to improve our lives, something that we come to to help our lives. It's another set of teaching. You encounter something bad, a bad experience, so you say, ah, oh, you know what, I've, I've been bad. I'm going to give this a try. I'm going to clean up my life. But you can't do that, you see. You can't do that. You can't say I'm coming because I need a boost in my life. I need help in my life. You have to come because you confess that you're bankrupt. Have you done that yet? 
Friends, have you done that? Have you come today saying, I'm bankrupt? What does that mean to be bankrupt? It means I have nothing in me. I have this huge debt, and it continues to mount in my heart, in my soul. And there is nothing in me to pay off this huge debt that continues to mount. I am poor in spirit. It's exactly that. And if you do that, Jesus says, you're blessed. Wow. Second, he says, blessed are those who mourn. The first beatitude that we read just now, it acknowledges your inability. There's nothing in us. We're bankrupt. But the second one is about maturity. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? What's the difference between a mature view of the world and an immature view of the world? College students, you're new here, right? Now you feel like an adult, right? You're finally broken free of the shackles of your parents and maybe uh, your last or your old spiritual experiences. Let me ask you this. What's the difference between a mature view of the world and an immature view of the world? A mature view of the world says this. Everything in the world is broken. This is realistic. This is expected. So when a mature person has self-control, he knows when to hold back. He knows when to hold back his anger. He knows when to hold back his complaining. He knows when to hold back his respect for people. You know, he's got good judgment. He knows when to hold back compassion even. An immature view of the world is this. What's an immature view of the world? An I-can-do-it view of the world. They think this. I deserve to be fulfilled. I worked hard in my life. I earned this. I deserve to be fulfilled in my life. So when suffering comes, what happens? You are tempted moment by moment to be bitter, to be angry, because this realistic view of the world was not expected by you. This broken understanding of the world is not a part of your understanding of the world. And so you're tempted to be bitter and angry and you push and you push and you work hard and you just beat yourself up when you fail and you push according to your own agenda and you clear people out of your way and you beat other people up when you fail and you're complaining and you often complain because this is now how it's supposed to be. This is not how my life is supposed to go. And do you know who the most guilty party of that is? Who is most guilty of that? It's people who are churched. Religious people. In fact, you don't have to be in the church to be religious. But church people tend to be this way. Because what's at the heart of religion? Somebody who's in the church, grown up in the church, and may be very religious, but has never entered the kingdom. Somebody who doesn't understand the gospel. It's all about what you depend on. It's all about who to blame for your brokenness. And that's why we just beat people up. You know, when we gossip, You know what you're doing? You're assassinating somebody else's reputation. And Jesus, in his Beatitudes, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you this, anyone who looks at somebody and hates him has already committed murder in his heart. That means every time we gossip, you are murdering somebody. It's deeper, it's far more reaching, somebody who's in the gospel. And we just kill other people. We just attack other people. We just gossip about other people. The Bible says you're immature. Friends, do not let that get into your life. Do not listen to people who try to get that into your life. You hear me? Let me talk to you as a brother, as a father, as a pastor. You hear me? 
That's an immature view of the world. A mature view of the world says this. The human condition is desperate. There are injustices. There is oppression. There is just wrongs. And it's so complicated and so nuanced. You can't just linearly lay it all out. There are injustices and oppression and death, but why? A mature view of the world is much more thoughtful. It's much deeper than that. Why are we so bad? You can't linearly lay that out. You can't just blame your parents. You can't blame your neighborhood, uh, education. You, You can't do that. The answer is much more complex. And the Bible's answer is it's sin. Sin. Sin is very nuanced. Sin is very complex. I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. I was bound by all my sin when your love came and set me free. The Bible says, here's the problem with the world. It's sin. It's not my self-esteem. It's not my upbringing. It's not just my socioeconomic class. You can't just try to rationalize it. What's sin? I've chosen to do my own thing against a king. That's sin at the heart of it. You take a two-year-old and you take him to the beach. The waves are crashing. The waves are just crashing. A lot of you have uh, infants or newborns or children right around that age. And you take him to the beach and waves are just crashing. And you're trying to guide him. So you hold his hand and you're guiding him. But what happens? He breaks free. He just wants to break free. And he runs into the water. If you let that child go, is he going to have the resources in him to, to tread water? And there are adults in here who don't know how to tread water. You think he's going to have resources in here to learn how to tread water? Is he going to start learning the backstroke, figuring things out like that? No. If you let that child go, that is not love. He will die. That child will die. That's sin. You need rescue. The Bible says the essence of sin is we have substituted ourselves for God. We want to live our own lives. So in other words, God is holding our hands tight. and We've broken free. We've chosen to break free into these crashing waves. And we're thinking that, well, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is great. There's freedom now. When actually we're drowning, you see. We're drowning. Until you're willing to admit that you broke away you will not mourn. Until you realize you broke away and you are in these waves and they're crashing, you will not mourn. To be poor in spirit means I'm drowning, I need help, I need rescue, I'm unable. But to mourn is to say, I brought myself here. I did this. I'm the one who broke free. It's not anyone else's fault but mine. Until you're willing to see your inability to rescue yourself And that's because of your sin. You're still in the waves. Don't you get it? You've broken free. You're still in the waves. And you may think it's fun for a while and it may be beautiful for a while, but eventually your lungs will fill up with that death until you perish. And that creates problems that begin at the heart, deep inside, and it starts to work its way outward, you see? If only you admit that it's your sin 
And, and the Bible is very counterintuitive because the thing that you think that you hate to do, the thing that you think that it's going to kill me to do this, to admit my pride, to admit my arrogance, to admit my, rebell- to admit my rebellion, right? You think it's going to kill you, but that's actually what's going to begin to rescue you, you see? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and they will be comforted because there's rescue for sin. You see that? The third characteristic of those who are in the kingdom, it's meekness. Blessed are the meek. Your problems can crush you, either because the brokenness the weightiness of that brokenness itself or because it's the result of your own sin. Either way, you're unable to crawl out of that on your own. But if you're meek, you're going to be encouraged. And the reason is because, he says, blessed are those who mourn. You can be encouraged. Uh, When you mourn, there's pain. When you recognize how unable you are and that it's because of you, you brought yourself here, there's pain. There's a lot of pain. But if you say, if you say this, listen, I got to correct myself as a result. I'm going to get up, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm just going to work harder. I need to change. There's going to be more pain in your life. And then on top of that, there's going to be shame because you failed. And there's going to be guilt because you tried. You know, and there have been more mistakes that are made. That's not meekness. You think that's humility? That's actually pride. Pride is actually driving that. I should have been better. I thought I could be better. I'm surprised by my sin. I'm surprised I could do something like that i got to just pick myself up. That's actually pride that's driving that, you see. It's not meekness. You're actually going backward to the I can do it, believe in yourself mentality. That's religion, you see. It's one thing to be angry that you're a sinner, but it's another thing to say, of course I'm a sinner. I mean, I have gifts. I have gifts, but look at how I use these gifts. I've distanced myself from the Father. I've broken free, thinking that these gifts were enough, that what I have about me, what I have in me is sufficient to withstand the crashing waves. And now I'm drowning. I'm drowning. What's a good confession? What's a true confession? Religion says I need to be better. I I got myself here. I need to be better. Is that a true confession? Is that a good confession? A lot of times what we do is because we're suffering, and friends who've grown up in the church especially, we need, that's what the purpose of community groups is that we can gather and really become honest about our failures. It's hard to do that. You know why? Because we've been brought up in a culture where you should be better. You you, You should have known better. You've grown up with the Bible. And so we're very quick to judge. And what we do is we say this. We say, um, here's my brokenness, but I know I I should be like this, and I should be like this, and I should be better. And there's almost a shame in not admitting that I should be better and that I'm not there. It's almost our way of kind of justifying. Like, I know, I know, you see? And what you're doing is you're you're creating this protective wall around yourself to show people it's your pride. You're saying, I get it, I know, I should be better. Uh, Either my problem is so much bigger that Jesus can't help me, you know, or what you're doing is you're justifying the fact that I get it, you know, and I don't need help. I'm just going to ride this out. You're trying to tread water. 
in a hurricane. You understand? <clears throat> a true confession says this. Not I need to be better. I need to be forgiven. That's where it starts. There are people who out there, out there who say, you know, I know God forgives, but I can't forgive myself. I've been so horrible, I can't forgive myself. And so they're living in guilt and they're living in blame. They're beating themselves up. There's a lot of just self-loathing. Uh, and what they're saying is this. I get it, I'm bankrupt. I know that. But I need to pay this off. And so you're not really poor in spirit. That's really self-pity. Uh, if you look at Judas, uh, the difference between Judas, who was an apostle, and Peter, who was an apostle, they were disciples of Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus. But after realizing what he did, what did he do? Was it true confession? Was it good confession? No. He tried to repay the debt on his own, and he paid with his life. He hung himself. Pride says, what Jesus did cannot, will not be enough for me. I still need to repay. A true citizen of the kingdom, those who've entered into the kingdom of God, they say this, you know, I sinned. I broke free from the Father, and I'm drowning, but I need help. I need rescue. I'm unable. Only Jesus can save me, and he did. He rescued me. I need a rescuer, and Jesus, only Jesus can rescue me. I'm drowning in my own mess, and only Jesus could save me, and he did, and it's more than enough. Why? Because only he could save. Only he could save, and only he would save. Only he could save, and only he would save, and he did it gladly. That's the power of God. The power of God is only he could save. The love of God is only he would save, and he did it gladly. He did it for me. That's why we confess. That's true confession. That's why we pray. That's why we go to Jesus. That's why we run to the Father in our confessions. That's why it's built into our worship to be able to run to the Father weekly, not in shame, but saying, Jesus, save me. And you have. Only you could. Only you would. And so I'm free to do this. You see? The word meekness brings, uh, it's a Greek word, praus. And that word, it's the image of the taming of a wild animal. Imagine this wild animal, a wild horse. Tremendous potential, tremendous force, tremendous power. And when you tame that horse, that horse will see the true potential of his power. Do you see that? Every muscle acting in unison, tamed to go in one direction. Now you see the great glory of that horse. Now you see the ultimate design of that horse. Now you see the true potential of that horse coming out. All the beauty and the design and the power and the gifts. Meekness is a submission that unlocks the power of grace in our lives. That's what it is. That's why a meek person is teachable. You know, as a pastor, you have to discern when people come to you and they say, I have a problem, and they just want to unload and just dump, and they don't want help. It's actually kind of like a, it's another form of self-justification and gossip in a way, you know. A meek person is teachable. A meek person is confessing. A meek person is repenting. A meek person runs back. 
A meek person is submissive and a meek person because and through all these things, in and through all these things, because of the rescue, because only Jesus could and only Jesus would and only Jesus did, for me, there's joy. Jesus says, you're blessed. He says, you see that? The fourth characteristic, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does it mean to be hungry? We all have been hungry. Some of you are hungry now. We have a picnic, and you're, you're, you didn't eat all morning because you're ready for this picnic, right? What does it mean to be hungry? Your desire for food, your desire for drink is overpowering you. It's overwhelming you. Jesus says it's people who enter the kingdom have that type of overwhelming drive for righteousness. That's what he's saying. They're desperate for righteousness. They're struggling for righteousness. In our world today, especially in our uh, progressive education system that we have today, we're not striving for righteousness. We're striving, and if I, you know, teachers, I, I know that uh, we, we have many teachers here, and uh, if you're in the education industry, I'm sure that you are inclined to agree the changes and the shifts in the education system uh, that have been progressive over the last several decades. There is no, uh, we are struggling to justify and self-empower uh, in our world today, in our society. And, uh, and so the education system is really a reflection of our society, this individualistic pursuit uh, for self-discovery. And so we're not really struggling for righteousness, uh, or in a, in a sense that we are, not, let me explain, but we're struggling f- to justify ourselves. What is righteousness? The biblical, a simple at least, biblical definition of righteousness is approval. To be right with someone. To be accepted by someone. In other words, everyone here in some way desires righteousness, desires approval, desires to be accepted. We desire a verdict. Every moment in our lives, in every circumstance, that means that we see ourselves as on trial. And depending on what you're depending on for your righteousness, for that approval, you will be a slave to the approval of other people, the acceptance of other people, or, uh, and you are, there's this desperate struggle. That's what I'm saying here. That's what the text is saying here. Will I be approved? Will I be acceptable? We're desiring righteousness. And when you have it, when you have it, there's, it's incredibly satisfying when you have it. And when you don't have it, your lives, our lives just fall apart. Before coming to Christ, there are two kinds of people. Those who feel overtly anxious, overtly anxious, because they know they're not accepted or not acceptable. And those who are secretly, covertly anxious because they're afraid they're not acceptable. You see? That, there are two types of people. And it makes sense. Why? Because Romans chapter 3 says this. There is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one righteous. And so either we're overtly anxious because we know that we're not acceptable. Or we're covertly anxious because we're afraid that we're not acceptable. God answers, and he says, it's because deep in our hearts, in our spiritual DNA, we know it's in our psyche, it's in our souls, it's written into our hearts, it is embedded in us. We know that we are not acceptable, and so we're desperately looking and struggling and fighting for approval. That's actually at the heart of why we fight and complain when we don't get approval. 
It's also why we're so, such slaves, slaves to our spouses, slaves to our children, slaves to our bosses. That's why we're like that. And it's so, some of us, we've, we've gone off that exit ramp a long time ago, and so it's just become a normal part of our lives. I mean, when you do something for 20 or 30 years in your life, 35, 40 years in your life and onward, you know, you're very, very, very long off that road, off that straight road. And, and so it almost becomes normal. And, uh, and but Jesus says here, but those who enter the kingdom are blessed. They're blessed if they hunger and thirst for that. Why? It's because they realize that the reason why they're looking for acceptance is because they know they're not acceptable to God. They are not right with God. They are not acceptable to God. And God is, there's wrath there and there's anger and we're unacceptable. Now we say, but I thought God is a God of love. I mean, I don't really want to believe in that angry, it's so 1970s and old school church. I don't want to believe in this God that is angry. Uh, God's a God of love. He loves everybody, right? He's not really angry, right? Look, a God, God is angry. First of all, God is angry. But he's angry because he's a God of love. Have you ever loved anybody whom you know is an addict, addicted to something in their lives? You know, when you look at them and you reflect and you pray for them, they're just destroying themselves because of this addiction in their lives. Um, you love them, but that love, it makes you angry. If your child is falling into addiction and they just keep coming and you see them groveling and you see them stealing, and you see them getting in trouble, you see their lives spiraling very quickly downward, their faculties are leaving them, All they're, they're just on one road to, uh, of addiction, and everything centers around that. Their health is now declining, and, uh, and everything is at risk, socially, economically, financially. Your finances are being uh, impacted through that, you know, and, and it hurts you. It just hurts you. If you love that person, if you really love that person, it hurts you. And you say, don't you see that you're, le- you're just a shell of who you were? You want to say that. You're, don't you see you're destroying yourself? Why are you angry? Because you hate that person? No. If you hated that person, you wouldn't care. You'd be indifferent. C.S. Lewis says the opposite of hate, uh, love is not hate. It's indifference. It's not because you hate that person. You, you, the opposite of love, sorry, is indifference. You are angry because you love that person. Real love is angry at sin. It's angry at self-destruction. Now, of course, you don't like seeing them going to jail. And you don't want to kick them out of your house. Of course not. And that's why we struggle. You don't want to discipline your child. It's hard to discipline your child. Let's face it, because they're cute. And no one's going to think they're more cute than you. Right? I don't care if they're 10, 20, 30, 40. They're your child. You don't want to discipline them. You don't want them to see jail time. You don't want them to go to rehab. It's painful. It's, it feels like punishment. But you know, if you love that person, you know they need it. You know it. It's not like there's a hating part of you that, that's crying out, I want justice. And there's a loving part of you that says, oh, we should be merciful, right? It's not like there's, it, it, you're split like that. Love cries out for both justice and mercy. Now, they seem 
antithetical to each other, but love cries out for both because they need both. We need both. And if we're like that as finite beings on earth, what about an infinite God of love? What about a God of infinite love and holiness like that? who is infinitely loving, infinitely holy and perfect, infinitely moral. Of course, of course he's crying out for both. So to say, I don't believe in a God like that, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. To say that I don't believe in a God of wrath is to say that he's not a God of love. Do you understand that? He's angry because he loves. You can't have a more loving God than a God that loves mercy and justice. You see that? To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to say this, only God's judgment, only God's verdict is the one that counts. And I can't earn it. I'm unable. And it's not in me. There's sin. You see that? To submit to that, that's meekness. And then to say, God's verdict is the only one that I want. That's the only one that I need. To be overwhelmed with that, to pursue that, to desire that. How do you get it? Because I just told you you can't earn it. I told you you don't have it in you. How do you get it? No one knows what it means to be poor in spirit, to be helpless, to be bankrupt. No one knows that more than Jesus. No one knows what it means to be broken more than Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was not only broken, he became sin. He became broken. No one knows what it means to mourn more than Jesus. On one hand, he weeps for Lazarus. He weeps for him as he lay dead. And he wept on the cross. You know why we know that? He says, my God, my God. He's, he's, that, whenever you see that Hebrew doublet, that means that there's emotional content as he's addressing the person. My God, my God. Jesus is weeping on the cross. No one knows what it means to be meek more than Jesus on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been abandoned. I've been betrayed. In fact, I should be rebelling. If I was rebellious, I would go against that. I would break free of that. I have the power to do that in innocence. But instead, what he does is he stays controlled. He stays on the cross. He chose the cross. He had all power to depart from that. And yet, he submitted. Holy and righteous, and yet punished. Huh? He chose that. He's meek. In fact, he's so meek on the cross, he's reciting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's fulfilling Psalm 22. My, he's being forsaken by God. Still obedient because he trusted. Still obedient because he trusts. Look at the trust of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the meekness of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the grace of Jesus. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at Jesus, the great high king, becoming weak for us. Look at Jesus, the great high king, sacrificing and surrendering all for us. Look at the great high king in Jesus. Look at the beauty of Jesus becoming sin for us, not totally bankrupt totally incapable now, becoming weak for us, choosing that. On the cross, you see 
His majestic beauty. That is a picture of true potential. Through brokenness, through His weeping, through His meekness, now we get to see true power, the true potential of Jesus. And He was exalted. He is exalted. We worship Him. Why? Because he, in His meekness, through His meekness, you see the true beauty and worth of who Jesus is. This is the wonder, you know, on the cross, Jesus Christ was broken and abandoned and, and, and uh, mourning, meek for us. That's why we know that if God can work through that to bring about the salvation of his people, surely he can work through your brokenness, your abandonment, your mourning, your meekness. You see that? Jesus Christ became broken and abandoned. He became sin for us. The wonderful counselor at the Garden of Gethsemane says this, my soul is troubled and there is no counselor. There will be no comfort for me on the cross. You see that? Mourning for us. Mourning and praying for us. The king giving up his throne, coming down, becoming nothing is more vulnerable than a baby. And that's why he came as a baby. Homeless, homeless. He says, the birds of the air have nests. The foxes have holes, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. Completely homeless for us. You see that? The righteous one the most kingly, acceptable, only begotten son of the Father in heaven. And yet in Luke chapter 23, Jesus Christ is on trial, waiting for the verdict. And Pilate says, I do not find this man guilty. And what do the people respond? Crucify, crucify. There is the verdict. Injustice, the ultimate injustice, a horrible verdict the most acceptable, righteous person in the world, condemned. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. The ultimate verdict, the only verdict that counts. And yet he was cast out. And why? Jesus Christ on the cross, really what he's saying is when he says, my God has forsaken me, he's saying, I am hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I am hungering and thirsting for God. And he has abandoned me. He has left me. I am thirsty. He cries out, I am thirsty. He was forsaken for us. He's saying, now I'm no longer right with God. I've become unacceptable, and the wrath and the anger of God is pounding on me, pouring out on me, on Jesus. Why? Jesus Christ received that cosmic guilty verdict so that we could be made righteous in him. Our lives are hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. The justice was poured out on Jesus so that God's mercy would be poured out on us. Only Jesus Christ on the cross reconciles the love of God in his justice and his mercy. And when he said, do you know, it's not like he went there and he said, oh, I'm just, I'll go. I mean, these miserable people, I mean, who's going to do it for them? I'll do it. That's not what he says. Do you know, Isaiah 53 says that, what, what did he look to? Because Hebrews 13 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was that joy? And Isaiah 53 explains that. Isaiah 53 says, he, he will be glad 
at the satisfaction, he'll be satisfied at the justification of many, God's people. That's what he looked to. And so when he says it is finished on the cross, he's saying it's satisfied. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. It's paid. That debt, that increasing debt that's mounting in our souls, he said, we can be satisfied. It's paid. We can be filled in him, Jesus Christ. No need to try to finish the work on your own. You can be satisfied in him. Look, the text doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and cook. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You just have to acknowledge that you're hungry and you're thirsty. You just ask. We receive it. It's like this. You've been starving. It's like a ridiculous analogy. You've been starving for 30 years. And all of a sudden, the chef at the Barclay Prime comes with baskets filled. And he says, this is my masterpiece. There is nothing that's going to be more satisfying than this. Baskets of his filet mignon. What do you do? You say, no, 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 I'm going to go and I'm going to, let me use your kitchen now that you're done yet because I'm going to, can I go use the kitchen? That's not what you're going to say. What do you do? You, it's like you're 30 years old, so you're like, you just kind of hold out your hand, right? That's what you're going to do, right? You're going to just barely, you know, hold out with whatever strength, you, you know, you hold out your hand. You look at it and you say, wow, that is amazing, right? And if you, if Brian Park is your pastor, he's like, that's amazing, right? That's what he's going to say, right? Uh, that's amazing. That's what you're going to say. You just hold out your hand. The Bible never says um, to work. In fact, the Bible always says, behold Christ. Behold the cross. Because it doesn't take any work to look. You see? Just acknowledge that you're hungry. We're about to come to the table, friends. If you are coming in with arrogance and pride... You're going to just take it religiously. That's what you're going to do. This is greater than the Barclay Prime. This is for the eternal satisfaction and renewal of our souls. And so to be a Christian means you come hungry. That's the prerequisite. We come hungry. Hold out your hand and take in Christ, his body and his blood. Take it in. Let's pray.